Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Hey, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. We're, we're already up to episode six. Boy, it doesn't feel like we could possibly be farther than five. I know, but we are up to episode six where we're going to hear chapter five. Well, that's great. I think people are listening. You have evidence. I do. I'm getting emails from people who, uh, one email from a guy said, uh, I don't listen to podcasts, but I have to listen to yours, which I, I think he, he's tormented in some way oh. by the fact that we exist, which is nice. That's I'm, just fine. I'm willing to take a listener for any reason whatsoever. Absolutely great. If you're in so, pain or if you're in joy, we're here. I think that's our new, uh, our new theme. We're having business cards printed. Yeah. If you're in pain or you're in joy, yeah, listen to this podcast. Excellent. <laughs> we'll get those printed up before the next episode. In I this episode, um, because you're going to be reading chapter five of the Ambitious Card, this is a chapter where we're going to spend more time with Uncle Harry, who we met a little bit in chapter one, and as we know, who will be a major figure throughout the entire series. But this is our first breakfast with Uncle Harry. And uh, I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about the genesis of Uncle Harry, who is a magician in his 80s. He is a generalist. He has done everything from uh, big stage illusions uh, to vaudeville, to burlesque, to kid shows. Uh, he's been on uh, the Ed Sullivan show, the Johnny Carson show, and just knows everything about magic. And he was based on a lot of different magicians. Uh, there's a little bit of Ricky Jay in him, for sure, there's uh, absolutely the amazing Randy is in their bit when it comes to the skepticism. But the two magicians that, to me, combined to make Uncle Harry would be Jay Marshall, who was also a generalist, a uh, ventriloquist magician, appeared on TV a ton, just a master magician. And then uh, Eugene Berger, who uh, was also a great, great magician and also a teacher and more of a sage uh, in that regard, and who I got to meet through you and through our mutual friend, Suzanne, when he came to perform at Sunday Night Magic a few months before he died. Yeah, I love the character of Uncle Harry, uh, and I don't think I'm alone. So, And I can say that because I didn't create him. You created him. So I can just say flat out, I love the character of Uncle Harry. I love doing Uncle Harry, and I think he is sort of a fan favorite. I remember uh, somebody who uh, listened to most of the books, maybe all of them, uh, after book three, threatened and said, if you ever kill Uncle Harry, I will kill you. So yeah. it, uh, he's a fan favorite and I love doing him. Yeah, he's just, he's terrific and he's really, really fun to write. And at the time of initial writing, uh, I had seen videos of Eugene, but had never met him. But I did get to meet him for a weekend when he came to town and, and he was terrific. In episode one, we uh, heard your memories of meeting Eugene. Yeah, you can go back and listen to that if you want. He was formative in my uh, development as a performer. And I thought it'd be fun this episode to hear someone else's uh, recollections of him. Our mutual friend, Suzanne the Magician, yeah. uh, was a longtime close friend of Eugene's. And if you folks, if you don't know Suzanne, first of all, I'm going to say it's Suzanne with a Z, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, if you're looking for her um, on the uh, World Wide Web, which isn't going anywhere, or Facebook, you can find her, but you got to spell it right, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E. And here's really all you need to know about Suzanne. Audiences all over the country love her. They've been in love with her since 1985. Uh, she is a favorite at Hollywood's famous Magic Castle, where she was awarded Close-Up Magician of the Year. In 2010, that's quite a feat. It and uh, yeah, the Academy of Magical Arts presents those awards, and she won one of them. Not only that, speaking of awards, she fooled Penn and Teller. She did indeed with a great trick uh, that in our show notes, we've got a link to seeing. You can see her do that. So we were lucky enough to sit down a while back with Suzanne and talk to her a little bit about her relationship with the great Eugene Berger. <music> What was your first encounter with Eugene Berger like? Um, it was amazing. It was like I was at the right place at the right time, and he uh, opened a door for me that really jump-started my career. I had seen him at a magic lecture. He came into town, and I was so new into magic, just like six months maybe. 
And uh, I was very interested in a certain part of the lecture that he had done. He was talking about getting away from doing little kids' birthday parties and the way that you would normally get those would be to work uh, family-style restaurants. You'd get a lot of little kids' birthday parties. And he, he was describing exactly what my career up until that point had been. And he said, you need to have upscale restaurants. But he didn't say anything about how to get them. So after the lecture, everybody was up there talking to him about his storytelling and his books and all of that. The only thing I asked him was, how do you get an upscale restaurant? And he said, well, you just have to know someone. And then he wrote a name on the back of a business card. And um, it happened to be this guy who was the general manager and head chef at uh, Rupert's American Cafe, which at the time was the hottest nightclub restaurant in Minneapolis where children didn't really go. And it was very upscale and very lovely. Well, this guy used to work in Chicago with Eugene. And so he knew how well magic worked. And the fact that Eugene just gave me that name and I looked like a 12 year old boy at the time, he didn't know anything about me. And he just so generously just gave me that name of, I mean, this was golden that he gave me. And so our relationship just blossomed from there. So Suzanne, what do you think it was that set Eugene apart from other magicians? His generosity, his um, willingness to open doors for people and to help people. I think that other magicians did storytelling magic, but Eugene understood how storytelling magic worked. It can't just be, here is a queen and it represents the feminine side of blah, blah, blah. And here is a king and it represents the masculine side of blah, blah, blah. And this is how they interact. No, he actually told a story and used the magic to support it instead of having a trick and then trying to just put some, some message to it. So I think other people did story magic, but Eugene understood more about story and how to actually get it to the story to touch people and then how to use the magic to support it. Everyone called him magic's mystic guru uh, and what a tremendous teacher he, uh, he was to so many uh, magicians and formative in their, uh, in their development in terms of how they approach it, the seriousness uh, which Eugene always gave to his magic. It was something, you know, when I would talk to him and say, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm working on a, you know, a new, a new trick. And I, oh, well, how long you, you know, what, tell me about it. He said, well, you know, I thought of it um, about a year ago and I have been rehearsing with it now um, pretty actively for eight months. Yeah. A have you performed it for anybody yet? No, 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 no. It's nowhere near ready for me to show it to people. And, and that sort of, you know, for those of us who may take something out of a box and do it the next day for somebody or that afternoon for somebody, that idea of it needing to be rehearsed and, and let it breathe and grow until there was a moment that he thought, okay, now I can show this to somebody. Right. Um, was something I think new perhaps to many in the magic fraternity. Am I right? I think so. I mean, you get all of these ads about magic tricks. Yeah, it's so easy. You could do it 10 minutes after opening the box. Well, yeah, you know, maybe you could do the physical part of it. But, and Eugene helped me learn this. The physical part of a magic trick is only like 15, 20% of the magic trick. The presentation of it is what sells the trick. That Band-Aid trick that I do is clever, but it's the story that makes it award-winning yeah, magic. Right. The, the guy who invented the Band-Aid transpo tried to put a presentation to it that was bigger than what Band-Aids are, and so it made it convoluted. So it died. Nobody ever did the trick. But now people want to do the trick, 
because of the life that it's in it, because of the story that I put to it. So Eugene really did know how to take a piece, something easy like card warp yeah, or gypsy thread. Yeah, right. sure. You could learn card warp and do it a half an hour after you learn it and do it flawlessly a half an hour after you learn it. But are you just going to go... Here, I fold that, and here I fold that, and look at that. Now it turns inside out, and now it's back. Woo. Is that what the trick is? Yeah. Or is it that story that he tells about a torture device? Right. Yeah, I, I mean, that does the frame that Eugene would put around things, even the simple frames, uh, yeah. when it was just a card trick uh, without an elaborate story, uh, like right. he used for Gypsy Thread or anything. The frame that he would put around something, this is the fastest card trick in the world. Whatever, however he framed it, made it so much more uh, compelling for an audience than just simply a magic trick, I think. Exactly, yeah. What was the best piece of advice Eugene ever gave you, if you can remember that? In one of our times of hanging out in his apartment, he said um, he wanted me to start teaching magic. And I went, oh, I'm not ready to start doing that. And he said, well, you know about the uh, trickster. Uh, let me see if I can remember the order. The trickster, the sorcerer, the oracle, and sage. Um, so that's the order of that you would go through. And um, so I said, Eugene, I'm still in trickster. I'm still out there goofing around and playing. Um, and he said, no, Suzanne, you're in sorcerer right now. And so he's seen me develop from the very early on. And he said, you're in sorcerer right now. And I said, well, don't I have to do Oracle first? before I can go to Sage, which is, you know, the master teacher. And he said, Suzanne, some can totally skip Oracle. And I believe you can skip Oracle. <laughs> so, so basically he got me starting to teach. And so I started teaching soon after. How do you think he's gonna be remembered within the magic community? Yeah, he, I think, gave permission to a lot of people to make magic something for adults. That um, magic certainly is wonderful for any age group, but Eugene uh, gave people permission to enjoy magic and to create magic specifically for adults, uh, not that it's adult themed, but that there's a gravitas to what Eugene did. Even the simplest card trick, uh, there was a, a seriousness and a delight that he took in it that um, I, I think changed the trajectory of magic. It, I think that's his biggest contribution, that this is an art that adults can embrace and enjoy and in the right hands you can get from an adult the reaction of a child the wonder yeah. it comes back to you yeah. in a way that without the way Eugene sort of uh, orchestrated it, it maybe we wouldn't have tumbled to that again for years oh uh he is I think in the majority of the magic community, like the father of magic with meaning. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't totally place him on this, in this amazing, almost godlike role. Even before he passed away, uh, I worked magic conventions with him and we couldn't walk from one end of the, hall to the other end of the hall without being stopped so many times that it took us 45 minutes to get across the room. You know, I had that same experience. I think we both did when Eugene came to uh, Minneapolis and was, he gave a lecture and then did his show that night. Uh, a lot of magicians 
came out of the woodwork to see him. And there was this sort of inability to move, to move him from point, point A to point B, particularly getting him out of the lecture took a long time. And I believe he was almost late to the show because you guys had so much trouble getting him out of the lecture because everyone wanted to talk to him. Right. And I think even uh, uh, if I remember correctly, that show night, we had to turn off the lights in order to get people to leave the yep. theater and leave him alone because uh, he's just that kind of guy. And I think we were his last public performance before he passed away. I believe that's true. I drove him to the airport, John. I don't even know if you know this, but I drove him to the airport and uh, I got out of the car and got his suitcase in his hand and said, Eugene, I'm just so grateful uh, that you would come up here and, and do this, you know, this little thing that we're trying to create. And he said to me, oh, Jim, I had a wonderful time. I'd come back if you ever wanted me to. And uh, uh, five weeks later, the man passed away. Yeah. Uh, very sad. I still have uh, texts in him, my phone from him from that period after he was here and before he passed away. I was texting back and forth because I knew he wasn't well, but I had no idea to the extent um, uh, that he was sick. Yes, we were very lucky to have met him. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and I think uh, your recollections and Suzanne's recollections kind of give people a sense of who he was. And we do have links in the show notes, a video of him performing, uh, and then also a nice tribute video online that someone did. So that is Eugene Berger. Our next episode, we're going to dive into the other aspect of Uncle Harry, which is the magician Jay Marshall. Uh, to give you sort of a rounded view of him. Uh, but we're about now to listen to chapter five. I'll just sort of recap where we are up until this point. I wish you would. Yeah, because it does. It's been a while. So when last we left him, Eli had just finished performing his ambitious card routine. He did the uh, Molini card stab that uh, last episode we learned about from Steve Cohen. And uh, we learned at the end of the chapter without any details that the mentalist Gray would die later that night. So in chapter five, uh, it's the next morning and Eli has yet to learn about the murder. Here's uh, chapter five. The Ambitious Card and Eli Marks Mystery. Chapter five. The beauty of living in Minnesota is that, upon awakening on the first day of November, you are just as likely to spend the rest of the day shoveling eight inches of snow as you are discovering that it's too hot and sunny to rake leaves. In other words, November in Minnesota is like one of those brown paper grab bags they sell at charity auctions, where you never know what you're going to get, but odds are that it will at least be interesting. Although the weathermen had been predicting snow for days, that particular November 1st dawned like a quintessential Indian summer day with a bright blue sky and a breeze that felt warmer than it had any right to feel. I left my apartment on the third floor and made my way down the way-too-steep staircase to Harry's apartment. My divorce had come at around the same time as Aunt Alice's death and that it seemed like the perfect opportunity to come back to the apartment on Chicago Avenue and once again make it my home. Since returning, I'd made it a habit to share breakfast with Harry as often as I could. Although he never once commented on this new tradition, I suspected that he really appreciated it. I really can't fathom the level of loss he experienced at her death. In addition to being his wife for over 50 years, Alice had also been his onstage assistant for nearly as long. As many of his contemporaries had confided in me, Harry and Alice's act wasn't just a magic show. It was an onstage love affair. Whether he was sawing her in half or she was helping him produce a cascade of doves, audiences sensed the chemistry they had together, which made their performance all the more special. "'Morning, Buster,' Harry said, without looking up from his in-depth perusal of the daily paper. "'I get all of my news and the comics to boot online, but Harry is a diehard in many ways. One of those included the addictive need to feel newsprint between his fingertips at least once a day. I poured myself a cup of coffee and picked up the sports page to be convivial. How was the show last night, he asked casually, although I knew he was deeply interested in any opportunity to expose mediums, psychics, and other frauds. About what you'd expect, I said. Some mind reading, some want-ahead stuff, the armpit tourniquet. 
Ah, that old chestnut, Harry said. And who was the alleged spiritualist? Gray, I answered, as I added some cream to buffer the bitter coffee that Harry favored. Harry shuddered. That one gives me the creeps. Always has. He turned the page and scanned the fresh columns of print. Did you give him a run for his money? Well, I shrugged. So much of his act is traditional magic that I really wasn't in a position to actually expose his methods. Not without exposing the methods of just about every working magician. Harry grunted in understanding without looking up from his reading. So I just did some comparable stuff, I continued absently paging through the paper, which at the very least took some of the shimmer off of his act. You pulled the rug out from under him? he asked. I think I honored the family tradition, I said. And the audience hated you for it? For a while, I said, although I think they warmed to me as things progressed. Then, just for fun, for my finale, I did an ambitious card routine, which I ended with a nicely executed Molini card stab, if I do say so myself. That got his attention. His eyes peered at me over the top of the newspaper. One eyebrow slowly rose like it was being pulled upward on a wire. Did you now? he said, giving a low whistle. He set the newspaper down. The Molini card stab was always one of my favorites. Did I ever tell you about the time I did that as the wrap-up of my act on The Sullivan Show? He had told me that story on a number of occasions, but I shook my head, and he launched into a blow-by-blow account of how Ed Sullivan himself had watched the act during rehearsal and made the decision right there on the spot to move Harry's position in the show in order to feature him more prominently. It was a glorious evening, he said, stroking his thick white beard and smiling warmly. We should break out the video of that some night and look at it again, I suggested. Yes, he agreed. Yes, we should do that some night. I knew that he'd been avoiding watching any of the old videos, as Alice would appear alongside him in every one of them, and he wasn't really ready for that. Not yet. Of course, it wasn't as if she had entirely disappeared from his surroundings. Her smiling face, like a silent screen star, peered out at us from all the photos, posters, and playbills on the walls up here. They lined the walls down in the store as well. Her clothes still hung in their closet. Her toothbrush and comb lay on the counter in the bathroom. Her needlepoint sat unfinished on the small table next to her chair in the living room, as if she had just stepped out to the kitchen for some tea and would return in a few moments to pick up where she left off. She was simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. I could tell that he was sinking into a similar reverie, so I got up and brought my cup to the counter. It's November 1st, I said, with a little too much forced cheer. If you want, I can walk the rent down to the landlord. What? he asked as he snapped back to the present. I noticed that his eyes had begun to water just a bit. No, that's fine, he said, finally shaking his head. I can walk it down. The stroll will do me good. With this mission ahead of him, he stood up, folding the newspaper carefully as he did. I'll go with you, I said taking his cup to the sink and adding it to my own. He stopped folding the paper. We both don't need to go, he said. That would be overkill. I want to go, I said as casually as I could. Besides, it's a nice day out. He gave me a long, penetrating look. He had spent a few years in the early part of his career touring with a mind-reading act, but it didn't take those unique skills to deduce my ulterior motive for this mission. You just want to gape like a lovesick schoolboy at the new landlady. He put a mischievous little spin on the word lady. Don't think I can't see that. It's so obvious you could see it from space. Guilty as charged, I admitted. I'm going with you. And that was that. Presenting the monthly check to the landlord in person has been a Mark's family tradition for as long as I can remember. As a child, I had enjoyed the privileged assignment of taking the check, sealed tightly in a plain white envelope, over to Mrs. Reinhardt, who lived in one of the brick apartment buildings on the other side of the movie theater. She always made a big fuss about my arrival and would encourage me to perform for her and her cranky husband whatever magic trick I was currently attempting to master. 
He matched her level of enthusiasm with his own dour nature, and in his own grumpy way, he taught me a lot about dealing with a tough audience. Now the tradition had moved from grandmother to granddaughter. It was a short walk from our door to hers. In addition to owning the strip of retail shops that took up half the block and the old brick apartment buildings that took up the other half, Megan had laid a personal claim to the shop on the corner. For years, it had served as our local drugstore under the name Shenandoah Drug, an odd choice given how far away we are from the state of Virginia and the eponymous river. Over the years, that corner shop had taken on other identities since the Targets and Walmarts of the world had driven nearly every corner drugstore out of business. Now it was owned and operated by Megan, with a new name that amused me every time I saw it. Chi and Things. The inside of the store was about what you'd expect for a store with a name like that. It was packed from wall to wall with New Age books, incense, crystals, natural oils, and a large selection of teas. In short, just the sort of mishmash of items that would appeal to a wide spectrum of credit card-wielding, spiritually-minded seekers. Harry and I entered the store to find that, despite the early hour, numerous customers were already meandering through the cramped space looking for just the right New Age tchotchke to set them straight on the path to enlightenment or help them further tune their chakras toward nirvana. While two young clerks roamed the aisles offering oil samples and answering questions, Megan stood behind the counter merrily ringing up sales and chatting warmly with each customer. She looked stunning, and, as is often the case with naturally beautiful women, seemed to have no idea of the visual impact she was making. I tried to keep from staring, but it was hard not to. I was completely smitten. As we waited in the short line to present the rent check to her, I surreptitiously tugged on Harry's coat sleeve. Give me the check, I said in my best sotto voce whisper. I want to give it to her. Harry scowled at me. What are you, five years old? He said, not bothering to match my vocal volume. You gave it to her last time, I hissed through clenched teeth. That makes it my turn. It's only fair. Well, if you want to talk about fairness, since I wrote the bloody check and it's coming out of my bloody account, I don't think you have any legitimate claim on its ultimate distribution. He waved the check in my face for emphasis, and I snatched it out of the air just as Megan said... And how can I help you today? I stepped forward, putting my body in front of Harry's and holding the check out to her. Just your two favorite tenants, Eli and Harry Marks, with this month's rent, I said cheerfully. She smiled and laughed, taking the check from me. Well, thank you. You know, you two don't have to hand-deliver this every month. Pete's setting up a direct deposit system with the bank to make it easier for all the tenants. Oh, it's no bother at all. The the walk does the old guy good, I said, gesturing toward Harry. Plus, it's important to get him out of the shop from time to time, I added quietly. But not quietly enough, it seemed. For a moment later, I felt a sharp sting in the back of my right ankle where Harry had just kicked me. Megan looked from Harry to me and then slowly back to Harry. Speaking of Pete, I said oh so casually, trying to turn her gaze in my direction. I just saw him last night over the caves. I'm surprised you didn't come along. The show was right up your alley. Megan shook her head as she stopped looking at Harry and leaned over to make a notation in a receipt book. I had to give some readings last night, she said as she scribbled, then added quickly, although it would have been fun to revisit the old caves and see how they've changed. Before I could register a comeback, she tore out the receipt and handed it to me. I handed it back to Harry, who snatched it quickly out of my hand with nary a thought of the paper cut he could have given me. I hope Pete isn't becoming a pest at your store, Mr. Marks, she added, once again turning her gaze on Harry. I was beginning to feel like the invisible man. He's really taken to the idea of learning magic. No, we love Pete coming into the shop, I answered quickly before Harry could respond. He's a very enthusiastic student. Of course, I'm guessing we won't be seeing as much of him around here once the divorce becomes final. No, probably not, she said absently. She looked Harry directly in the eye. I hate to bother you with this, Mr. Marks, she said, 
but there's a spirit over your right shoulder who is really trying to get my attention. The spirit says, it has a message for you. We both looked at her, surprised at the sudden change in subject, and then, without realizing we were doing it, simultaneously looked over Harry's right shoulder. I can't speak for him, but I didn't see anything out of the ordinary, except the evidence that both of us needed to find a shampoo that does a better job on dandruff. If you have a couple minutes, Megan added earnestly, I'd love to sit down with you and do a reading, see what all the fuss is about. She looked at him expectantly, and to my surprise, he smiled at her. That would be delightful, my dear, he said sincerely. I think a reading would be just delightful. Megan arranged for one of the clerks to watch the cash register, and while she handled that, she pointed us toward the back of the shop. Have a seat back in the reading area, she said excitedly. I'll be there in just a moment. Why are you agreeing to this? I whispered to Harry as we made our way through the cramped aisles toward a small table in a back corner. Nothing strange about this. I've historically liked to keep abreast of what's new in the field of parapsychology, he said indignantly. Besides, you aren't the only one who recognizes how attractive she is. Despite his advanced years, I was about to give him a solid smack across the back of the head, but was interrupted by Megan's arrival. Thanks for doing this, she said, gesturing Harry to a chair on one side of the small linen-covered table while she took a seat across from him. I'm still learning how to effectively tap into my intuitive energy, so any time the spirits reach out to me, I like to take the opportunity to practice. Practice makes perfect, Harry said in a sing-song voice, and I once again had to restrain myself from striking the old man. She opened a small black velvet bag and removed several crystals of various sizes, arranging them in two lines, one on either side of the table. I find that crystals sharpen the energy, she said by way of explanation. The more I learn about my gift, the more I find a connection with crystals. Isn't that funny? Both of us nodded at once, almost perfectly in sync. We looked ridiculous. All right, now, sometimes the information from the spirit comes through very quickly. Megan continued picking up a small pad and pen that sat on the table. Many clients prefer to take notes so as not to miss anything. Buster can take the notes, he said with mock efficiency, smoothly passing the items back to me. Besides, it'll give him something to do, idle hands and all that. There were only two chairs, so I leaned against a nearby wall and prepared to take notes. Megan had Harry place his hands flat on the tabletop, and then she placed the tips of her fingers so that they lightly touched his. She settled back and relaxed, shutting her eyes and sighing deeply. She sat in this posture silently for several long moments, so long that Harry and I actually exchanged a quick look that said, is she asleep? Then she suddenly opened her eyes and looked straight through Harry as if reading a teleprompter from the other side. The spirit is not a blood relation, but is closely related, perhaps a half-sibling. Do you have any stepbrothers or sisters? No. Harry shook his head, but didn't offer any more information. This didn't seem to phase her for a second. She moved quickly over this psychic speed bump and continued. Perhaps a spouse. Has your spouse passed? Harry dipped his head slightly in agreement with the question, but again didn't offer any additional help. Megan nodded in agreement. Yes, it's feeling very much like a spouse. And she passed several years ago, am I right? Harry shook his head. It was more recent, wasn't it? Megan continued, plowing ahead unabated. You had to admire her spunk. I sure did. That and her hair, her eyes, her lips. Yes, I see that now. This is a relatively new spirit, she said, drawing me back to my note-taking. She went through a long, protracted illness. Is that right? Harry shook his head again, and he continued to shake it with increasing frequency for the next twenty minutes. I filled several pages of notes as Megan stumbled her way through the reading. If this reading had been a golf game, she would have shot one of the highest scores in history. If she'd been bowling, 
she would have scored in single digits. Every path Megan went down found her hitting false turn after false turn, or more often, yet another dead end. To his credit, Harry remained cordial, but at the same time, he didn't give her an inch of assistance. It was painful to watch at times, like a stern lifeguard who refuses to throw a child a life preserver while she's attempting to cross a treacherous stream. After several minutes of this, Megan finally settled back into her chair. She looked tired, but exhilarated. She looked great. Did any of the things I received from the Spirit connect for you? She asked Harry as if hearing the word no 40 or 50 times in a row hadn't already answered that question for her. And nothing hit like a lightning bolt, if that's what you mean, Harry said diplomatically. Well, they say that sometimes it takes a couple of days for all the pieces to fall into place. You might be surprised. Harry smiled. Yes, he said. I might be. She stood up, and Harry followed suit, reaching for his wallet as he got up. How much do I owe you? He asked softly as he opened the wallet and began sorting through the bills. Megan waved away his question with one hand, resting the other casually on her hip as she pushed a stray strand of hair out of her face. Oh, nonsense, she said. I can't charge for connecting people to the other side. That just wouldn't be right. A psychic who doesn't charge money? Harry gave me a look of surprise and wonder. I shrugged. Although it hadn't seemed possible, she just became even more attractive. Megan began walking Harry toward the front of the store with me tagging along. I just saw that poor spirit over your shoulder, she continued. Saw it the moment you came in, and it was just so persistent, I just had to help get its messages across. Well, thanks for that, I said before Harry could answer. You know, I'm amazed I could hear anything at all, what with all these new crystals I got recently, she said, gesturing toward a display case filled with various stones, gems, and crystals. Crystals can be so loud sometimes, don't you think? Yes, I agreed, trying to sound sympathetic. Yes, they can. Rambunctious, even. This produced a sidelong glance from Harry. I ignored it and drove forward now that I had her attention. I noticed that you've added a used book section since I was last in. Yes, she said, looking over at the corner that housed several makeshift shelves of old paperbacks and hardcover books. Two teenage girls were looking through the titles and exchanging conspiratorial whispers. That's working out well, she said, with a hint of pride in her voice. It's nice to be able to keep those books circulating to new souls. You know, I had an idea for a promotion that you could do, I said, gesturing to an invisible banner that could hang over that section of the store. You could have a banner that says, Used New Age Books. Any book you think you read in a past life is half off. She gave me a long, questioning look and then burst out laughing, giving my shoulder a playful slap in the process. You're funny, she said, looking me in the eye, finally, and then turning to Harry. He's funny, isn't he? Harry was attempting to suppress a scowl and coming up short. Hysterical, he said without humor, his flat tone speaking volumes. Could you be any more of a lovesick puppy? Harry asked, not nearly as quietly as I would have liked. Harry and I stood outside the front door of Chi and Things in silence for a few moments, making sure that Megan had returned to talking with customers and that we were well out of earshot. Me? I squeaked, my voice hitting a higher range than I had intended. What about you? I did my best impression of him. I think a reading would be just delightful, I said, drawing out the last three syllables into about six. You old phony. He gave a harumph, and I harumphed right back at him, and then we turned and started heading up the street to the magic shop. I realized that I was still holding the small notepad Megan had given me. I absently flipped through the pages. Did she even get one solid hit? I asked as I scanned my notes. Nada, Harry said. You'd think that mere chance would factor in and help her out with at least one hit. You'd think, he agreed. Then he stopped. Wait, there was something. Something about dimes. She said it very quickly. I paged through the notes until I found it. 
Here it is. She said that your late wife is leaving you dimes as reminders of her love. I looked up to see that a cloud had crossed over Harry's face. What? I asked. It's just, he said, pulling on his beard thoughtfully. When I first met your aunt, it was at a party. At someone's house, I don't remember whose. Anyway, at the end of the night, I asked Alice if I could call her sometime. And she said yes. She said yes, I could call her, he repeated, smiling at the memory. So? I don't get the connection to dimes. Hold your horses, I'm getting to it. At the end of the party, I shook her hand good night, which is what we did back then, not like your generation, he said pointedly. Yeah, whatever, finish your story. Anyway, I shook her hand, and when I pulled my hand back, I found that she had slipped a dime into my palm. He looked at me and grinned. You see, at the time, a dime was the cost of a phone call. Well, that's sweet. However, that's not what Megan said in the reading. I looked at my notes again. She said, your late wife is leaving you dimes as reminders of her love. Well, you see, that's just the thing, Harry said as he continued walking toward our store. The last couple of weeks, or maybe more, I keep finding money on the ground. He gestured to the sidewalk in front of us, and I half expected to see some coins there. Now, pennies you find all the time. No one bothers to pick them up. I certainly don't. But I haven't found pennies. No nickels, no quarters, no, he said, reaching into his pocket. I keep finding dimes, like that one right there. Harry stopped and pointed to a bit of silver, just visible in the dirt by the curb. I knelt down and picked it up, brushing it off on my pant leg. It was worn and scruffy, but it was a dime. I held it up, and Harry took it from my hand, smiling at it. Come on, he said as he dropped the coin into his pocket. We're late getting the store open. Still not entirely certain about what I had just seen and heard, I followed, lagging a few steps behind him. Upon approaching our store, I was surprised to see a pirate leaning against the locked door. He was dressed in the full regalia, including three-sided black hat with a skull and crossbones emblazoned on its side, eye patch, and a sword. I should clarify, I wasn't surprised to see the pirate. I was surprised that he was on time. The pirate, Captain Magic, to his young audience, is a kid's magician. He's also my friend Nathan and anyone who knows him would consider him an odd candidate for the role of court jester to the kindergarten set. Perpetually depressed, he's lived his life under a dark cloud that follows him wherever he goes. He's a hell of a magician, but I've never seen him get much joy out of that either. Morning, Eli, Nathan said in a slow monotone. Morning, Harry. Good morning, Nathan, Harry said with extra cheer. Harry, like many people who know Nathan, was attempting to pull him away from melancholy by being just a little too cheerful himself. It has no effect on Nathan. Never has. I hope you haven't been waiting long, I said as I unlocked the door. I've got everything ready for you. No, I just got here, Nathan said. Found a parking place right out front, but I think I rolled over some broken glass, so I'll probably have a flat by the time we're done. That sentence was Nathan in a nutshell. He could find the dark cloud under virtually any silver lining. I let the three of us into the store. Harry immediately began his morning ritual, which included pulling open the blinds, turning on the lights, and removing the cloth covers from the display cases. Nathan and I made our way through the store toward the basement. Over the last few years, foot traffic in the store has dwindled considerably. We still did a brisk internet business with the tricks and devices Harry had invented throughout his career. And a couple items I had come up with were also starting to sell online. The basement housed our workshop, where we both had several projects in various stages of completion or abandonment, depending on our moods. 
I've tested it under a few different conditions so far with solid results, I told Nathan as we made our way down the steep and creaky stairs. Barometric pressure can be an issue, but I think I have a workaround for that. Just so you can stop the kids from crying, Nathan said with a plaintive edge in his voice. I gotta find a way to make the kids stop crying. Nathan's problem was one shared by just about any performer who employs helium balloons while working with kids. There's nothing that makes a kid happier than a helium balloon and nothing that makes them sadder than when they lose their grip and it floats up into the sky never to be seen again. Even popping a balloon is not as traumatic, although I'm not really sure why. Perhaps the popping sound has some sort of primal catharsis built into it. But a single balloon that gets loose can turn a happy birthday party into a tantrum-filled nightmare scenario. To solve the problem, I had experimented a bit and found just the right combination of helium and oxygen so that a filled balloon will float but won't go any higher than about six feet off the ground. It took a lot of trial and error, and for days, the basement was filled with hundreds of balloons either caught in the ceiling or drifting lethargically several inches off the floor. Of course, uh, finding the right mix was only the first part of the problem. The second was to make the process magical, I said to Nathan, as I helped him remove his pirate coat. And I think I've cracked that, too. I handed him my invention, a cross between a large belt and a small corset to put around the waist. It was a bulky fit because the back of the belt held a metal canister like a miniature scuba tank. A tube with a small custom nozzle on the end ran out of the canister. I helped Nathan put his coat back on, taking care to snake the tube down the inside of the right sleeve. I gave the coat one final tug and then stepped back to check my work. That looks good, I said, gesturing for him to spin around so I could see it from all sides. You really can't see anything out of the ordinary. I crossed over to my workbench and opened a fresh bag of balloons, grabbing one and heading back to Nathan, who was looking at the nozzle of the tube in his sleeve. Where'd you get this? he asked. I shrugged, handing him the limp balloon. I cobbled it together from a couple of different pieces. Here's how the gag works. You bring the balloon up to your face, just like you would if you were going to blow it up with your mouth. Nathan followed my instructions as I talked him through the steps. At the same time, you've palmed the nozzle at the end of the tube. You bring the end of the balloon to your mouth, but it's the nozzle that actually goes into the balloon. Your hands are covering it, so it just looks like you're blowing up a balloon normally. Once the nozzle is in place, just press the button on its side and the balloon will inflate. I watched as he went through the steps, and I was happy to see that it really looked like he was blowing up the balloon manually. When it reached the right size, he pulled it away from his mouth and quickly tied off the end. He then mimed handing the completed balloon to an invisible child in front of him. He let go of the balloon, and it floated in midair right where he had left it. After a few seconds, it began to drift upwards, but it didn't get any higher than six feet. The balloon floated around the room languidly. We both watched it transfixed. That's cool, he said finally. For a second, he almost sounded happy. Once I got Nathan's stuff all packed away and he headed off to his gig, I began to putter around the store, taking care of all the little chores that I never seem to get around to, but which always need to be done. First, I tackled restocking the gag gifts. It's a sad fact, but the few walk-in sales we do get all seem to come from that one rack in a back corner. Over the years, we've moved it around the store to maybe six different spots. Doesn't matter where we put it, people always find it. It also doesn't seem to matter that the store is packed to the gills with some of the greatest magic illusions ever made. People are always drawn to the damned gag gift rack. On that rack are all the staples for a classic gag gift. Chattering teeth, fake dog poop, fake vomit, the coughing ashtray, exploding golf balls, joy buzzers, rubber chickens, and the ever-popular fart spray. We'd actually sold out our supply of fart spray. 
and I was just in the process of unpacking the new shipment we had recently received when I heard the tinkle of the bell over the front door signaling that a customer had entered the store. I set the fart spray aside, turned my attention toward the door, assuming it was Nathan returning with another question. One glance told me it wasn't Nathan. The guy was backlit by the late morning sun, and he almost completely filled up the doorframe with his bulk. But I immediately recognized that big, dumb, square head. It could only be one person, my ex-wife's new husband, Fred Hutton. Or, as I always referred to him, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton, because it annoyed him. Or at least, I hoped it did. Marks, he said in that raspy voice of his. That was the extent of his hello. I had discovered that Fred worked best with words of one syllable or fewer, if possible. Good morning, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton, I said. What brings you by on this fine day? This is not a social visit, he said, stepping into the shop. Another man, another detective, I assumed, followed him in. Well, that's too bad, I said, because personally, I don't think we socialize nearly enough. Yeah, right, he said, recognizing my subtle sarcasm and returning it in kind. For a moment, it was as if we had been transported back to the Algonquin Roundtable circa 1925, and then... Just as quickly as we had gone, we slammed back to present day. I need you to come downtown, he said. He shifted his ubiquitous toothpick from one side of his mouth to the other. Although, to be fair, it was unlikely he would have used the word ubiquitous. Is it about Deirdre? I asked. The hairs on the back of my neck were beginning to stand on end. Is she okay? This isn't about her, he said. It's about this guy named Gray. What about this guy named Gray? He scowled down at me. There's this guy named Gray, and he's dead. I certainly hadn't seen that coming. How did he die? I asked the question like I had a right to know. Stabbed. Through the eyes. Among other places. I tried to remain cool. Fred stared at me for what seemed like a long time. So you're ruling out suicide? I finally asked dryly. Okay, so thank you, Jim. That's chapter five. That's there's a lot going on in that chapter. We meet a, a lot of people. You're grinning at me now. Why are you grinning? You like that? <laughs> I just closing? love that line. <laughs> so you're ruling out suicide? That's a great line. Good for you. Yeah, very nice. Well, I, I must credit that to uh a movie I made in the 80s called Deception with my pal Jack Steinman. Uh, I take credit for that line. I'm pretty sure I wrote that line at the time, although it was a shared script. And Jack may, uh, may protest that, but I think that line was mine. Good, anyway, writers, good writers borrow, great writers steal. And you're stealing from yourself. I think you're fine. I really do. All right. I yeah. hope so. Anyway, a lot uh, just happened in that chapter. We got to uh, spend more time with Harry. So we've met Megan. Uh, we've got to see her store Chian thing. She did a reading for Harry that went nowhere. We met Nathan, the kids magician. And then at the end of the chapter, we met Eli's ex-wife's new husband, homicide detective Fred Hutton. Yes. Who is uh, another fan favorite. I must say the, uh, the, the reading that Megan does of Uncle Harry is based on as you may remember, a psychic reading that uh, I had done to me when you and I were working with a pair of psychics who needed writers to do some sort of live show. We were meeting with them about that. And at the end of the meeting, the young woman turned to me and she said, there's a spirit over your shoulder that wants to talk to you. Do you mind if we spend a couple of minutes doing that? And you being ever protective said, I'll stick around. And she proceeded to do a reading of I don't know, 25, 35 minutes in which not one thing she said connected with anything. It was, I guess, the coldest of cold readings you could possibly have. And I remember leaving and one of us saying the other one, just simple chance would suggest <laughs> she would hit something. I think uh, that's probably you said that. I uh, Probably, yeah. I, uh, I would never tempt the spirits in that sort of way. Anyway, you know, so. Um, the money trouble. Uncle Harry's reading by Megan is based on an actual reading I had that I don't know if that woman went on to be a psychic, but. Um... Yeah, it's. Can I tell you something about that audition that you you may never have? I may never have told you this story. Please do. 
okay, so they had an audition. My agent sent me to an audition. They were looking for uh, an MC for that event. And, and my agent sent me to the audition and there was no script. They didn't have any script to read. So they asked me to do something. So I, I, you know, goofed around and did some stuff that I have in my bag of tricks. And then they said, would you just, <clears throat> would you just, um, why don't you just try to do a psychic reading right now um, uh, for one of us? And I went, yeah, okay. And so I just, you know, did just kind of whatever came into my mind. I was doing, oh, there's a, some, I'm getting the, uh, uh, I'm getting a uh, uh, something. Uh, there's somebody, the letter G, I don't know. Does that mean anything to anybody? And, uh, you know, yes, it does. And we talked about it. And so when it was over, they said, great. Uh, that was just terrific. Um, are you a psychic? And I said, no, not as far as I know. And she said, well, my father's name was Gary. And I'm pretty sure that you were, I'm pretty sure you were in touch with my, with my father, Gary. And, it, and I kind of laughed. And then when I got into my car, I thought, what if that's, I mean, what if that's all it is? What if it, what if you just sort of get out of your own way a little bit and it's like what this stream of consciousness and you go, hey, some of the thing with the G, which is, I don't know why I picked the letter G, but what if it's just that simple and we've just closed ourselves off? I've never had anything even remotely similar to that happen to me again. But then again, I have never tried again. Uh, we will we will do that in a later episode. Oh, I can hardly wait. That would be really fun. Yeah. Uh, as as more psychic stuff happens throughout the yeah. book, we'll we'll keep coming back. Okay. To you and, and your alleged psychic abilities. I can't. I can hardly think that's. I don't. I have no. I can't. I'm not getting anything right now. I've got nothing. We'll come back later. All right. No. Anyway, we should wrap things up. I want to thank our good pal Suzanne for chatting with us about Eugene Berger. She will be back in the future to talk about teaching and uh, how you teach magic and also about uh, guilt the guilt of magicians feel if they are lying to people. So yeah. that'll be coming up in a few episodes. She is a delight folks. If you ever get the chance to see her, absolutely make sure you do. You can follow Suzanne at her website, suzmagic.com, S-U-Z magic.com. Or you can find her on Facebook. I just search for Suzanne, the magician. Again, that's Suzanne with a Z S U Z A N N E Suzanne, the magician. And John, am I correct in assuming that in the uh, show notes for this episode, there are going to be some links uh, to actually watch Suzanne? You mentioned that there's a link to watch Eugene Berger performing. Uh, and uh, did you put up Suzanne on Penn and Teller? Yes, her fullest appearance is on there. And I believe I found version of her doing the famous cups and balls routine, which is how she ends her castle ship. And that's Ooh, really fun to watch. It's beautiful. So uh, we talked about Eugene Berger this time in our next episode. We're going to learn about the other magician who Uncle Harry was based on. Uh, that's magician and ventriloquist Jay Marshall. And we'll hear about him from none other than his son, Broadway producer and magic store owner, Sandy Marshall. Plus, uh, in upcoming episodes, I know we're going to be joined by David Regal, uh, Julie yep. Ang, yep. Wayne Fetterman. Wayne Fetterman is a, a stand-up comic uh, who some people may recognize. He's also an actor. He's been on a lot of TV shows. And he's an adjunct professor, I think, at UCLA on teaching people the history of stand-up comedy. Um, and he's going to talk to us about, in a few chapters, Uncle Harry will reveal his passion project, which is he collects uh, stand-up comedy albums. And Wayne is going to talk to us about the history of stand-up comedy albums, which I think will be really fun. Yeah, it would be great. And speaking of comedy, uh, we also talked with Derek Hughes and Nick Defat. Two very, 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 very funny guys. But the interview, I'll just tip this to you now, was fascinating as these very funny guys talk about the very serious side of being funny in front of people. I, I found it absolutely uh, enlightening, revolutionary in some ways, just so cool. Uh, to delve into that with them. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, when you talk about interviews, I'm so excited for people to hear the Dick Cavett interviews. Yes, that'll be a couple episodes from now, uh, parts one and parts two of that. Uh, he was just terrific. Oh, my goodness. And then so much fun uh, for me, and I know for you too, uh, to talk to somebody who is, you know, one step away from 
people that we absolutely adore and have on a pedestal, Johnny Carson, Groucho Marx, uh, just to talk to him about that, Slidini, yep. uh, it, it was phenomenal. He, he brought up Groucho all on his own. We didn't, even, yep. we didn't even have to. I would have led him there, but we didn't have to. We didn't, no, we did not. Anyway. Yep. All right. That's it for this episode. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time for Chapter 6 of The Ambitious Card. Please give us a rating on whatever platform you might be listening to us on. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Hit it. Hit that subscribe button. We'll come back if you will. Goodbye, everybody. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Thanks for listening.